sports prepared me to be a CEO founder more so than anything else. Because I believe that the hardest aspect of being a founder CEO is managing your own psychology. Because in a period of one day, you're going to wake up and you're going to take over the world. And then around noon, you're going to find out some news that's going to make you think that this company is not going to succeed. And by the way, two minutes later, you got to jump on an all hands call and you got to present to the company or you got to jump on a prospect meeting with a customer. And so those inevitable ups and downs and twists and turns, that's what sports is all about. You win, you lose. And immensely, the athletes who are best prepared are actually the ones, not just athletes, human beings are the ones who never get too high and never get too low. There's this governor in the middle of the emotional, they never get too high or low. Man, did sports prepare me for, for all the difficult challenges, the inevitable moments of failure and the twists and turns of building a company. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I am incredibly proud of my wife, Julie. Not just because she's one of the most principled, caring, generous, loving, strong, capable humans I know. Not just because she's an incredible mother to our three girls and a loving and supportive wife. And it's not even because last year in the midst of a global pandemic, while juggling a full household with our three girls, and also working as a healthcare provider in the community, that she took a major leap. She shifted from being a nurse practitioner to a nurse practitioner and business owner. Now, I am really proud of her, not because she took this leap, but because of how she's doing it. When faced with great uncertainty and high stakes, we desperately search for certainty. And usually that means looking outside. My wife, like every entrepreneur I know, myself included, has fallen into that trap where she turned to advisors, friends, colleagues, competition, for answers, for some solid ground. But that tends to be a fool's errand that only provides false answers or doesn't provide any answers at all. And it can often leave you ended up feeling overwhelmed, like a failure, behind, weak, incapable. In search of the stability, we end up on quicksand. Where is the solid ground? Remembering who you are and what you are for. I'll never forget the moment I saw my wife do just that. We had gotten the news that a competitor had raised a large amount of money and it brought on all the fears that typically comes with it. There was a day of freaking out a day of looking elsewhere to see what they could learn from them, a day of feeling perhaps unworthy of doing this work, of being in this position, incapable of succeeding in the face of such stark competition. And then I saw her come back to a simple but important truth. She wanted to do this business because of how deeply she cares for her patients. The competitor has nothing to do with that. She got into this business because to her core, she is someone who loves to deeply care for others. That has nothing to do with the competitor. So all the stuff about the competitor and how much money they raise and who they're hiring, all that stuff, did it matter? It's all noise. It didn't matter. What really mattered? What really mattered was that she could look at herself in the mirror at the end of the day and be satisfied with her answer to this question. Do we care for patients today that was our best? Do we make sure everyone we met felt seen, heard, supported. No one else gets to answer that question but her. No one else's answer matters. She found the signal amidst all the noise. 
Damn, I'm proud. Jeremy Bloom is one impressive guy. He is the only athlete to both ski in the Olympics and be drafted in the NFL. And on top of that, he's built a strong and growing business called Integrate. Now, he knows well as anyone what it's like to be in high stakes, high pressure, competitive environments. And he knows how easily you can lose yourself in the noise. The noise of the competition, the noise of the crowd, the noise that comes with attaching your worth to the winning. In this conversation with Jerry, they talk about Jeremy's story, the emotional toll of high stakes competition and an important project he's been part of there, and the importance of finding the signal amidst the noise, the signal of what matters most to you. Enjoy. True listening is rare. And yet, we believe listening is among the most needed life and leadership skills of our time. We found listening skills to be core to our work with clients and teams, and we've seen that a culture of listening really sets up a container for deeper conversations to happen and allow for deeper inquiry. Listening supports better decision-making, smarter problem-solving, and more innovative solution creation. So join us and other members of the Reboot community for Reboot Your Listening, a unique virtual workshop facilitated by Reboot Coaches which will take place on March 19th at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. We will introduce you to the core listening concepts and practices that have formed the foundation of our coaching and group work since Reboot's inception and give you the tools for implementing these practices in your own leadership. To learn more and to register, head to reboot.io slash reboot your listening. That's reboot.io slash reboot your listening. Hey, Jeremy, how are you? It's good to see you. It's great to see you, Jerry. It's been a couple of years. It Two has years been a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you for coming on the show. And before I sort of lose track of this, could you just take a moment and introduce yourself? And as we unpack things, we'll talk a little bit. About sure. It. My name is Jeremy Bloom. I was born and raised in Colorado and, and still living in Boulder, Colorado, although I've had a couple stops along the way to come back to Colorado. I spent about half of my life, if you broke up life after kind of the age 10 to 38, which I am now, spent about half that time pursuing uh, two sports in athletics, football and skiing. And the other half of that pursuing entrepreneurship through being a CEO and founder of a B2B enterprise software company. So, you know, I want to uh, jump in and, and note, uh, unlike a lot of guests who come on, typically what happens is a guest will come on, especially an entrepreneur will come on and uh, see, I'm starting to think of you as an entrepreneur, not as an athlete. Isn't that interesting? That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and they'll come on and they'll have a specific like, hey, I'm struggling with a co-founder conflict or that. But in this case, we reached out to you. And we reached out to you because um, our mutual friend, Brad, suggested I watch the documentary, The Weight of Gold, which I'll let you describe a little bit about because I know you were instrumental in the production. And then we said, okay, we really should have a conversation with Jeremy. So tell us if you can a little bit about The Weight of Gold and what the film is about. So The Weight of Gold is a, is a documentary that premiered on HBO this year, a couple months ago. And really what it is, is a collection of the most successful United States Olympians that you can imagine in recent history. 
and their stories and struggles of depression, and some of them, their, their thoughts and overcoming thoughts of suicide, uh, but also the stories of our friends in the Olympic community, which is quite small, who weren't able to overcome those thoughts and ultimately took their life. And my friend, Brett Radkin, is the producer visionary behind The Way to Gold. And he reached out to me about three and a half years ago because he was doing a story on Steve Holcomb. Now, Steve Holcomb was the driver for bobsled number one. They won an Olympic gold medal in, in Vancouver. And just a, an amazing human being, great friend, guy that you always wanted to be next to and around. And he was doing a story on, on Steve and in part his struggle with depression. And while he was filming that, Steve actually uh, passed away at the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid and, and spoke pretty openly um, about his struggles with mental health. And Brett reached out to me and said, hey, is there a bigger story here that, that we should think about telling? And I drew my experience back to my good buddy, Jarrett Speedy Peterson. Speedy was his nickname, who I grew up skiing with. He was an aerialist, so he did all the flips and the crazy stuff, you know, triple backflips with four spins, 100 feet in the air, like wild man. I was the mogul skier, and, but we made the United States ski team around the same time. We were 15, 16 years of age. He won a silver medal in Vancouver, and he sadly and unfortunately took his life uh, a few years ago. And he even opened up to me one time when I was about 25 years of age, uh, one night at the Olympic training center, he just opened up and, and he said, I fight demons. And he was crying and, and just in a state that I'd never experienced another human being, let alone my buddy. And we had a world cup the next day. And, um, I was just, you know, so focused on the world cup. And I just thought he was having a bad day. And I said, Hey man, like whatever I can do to be helpful, let me know, you know, you're, one of the best guys in the world. You're going to overcome this. I, I wasn't equipped to have the conversation or identify the illness that he had and was going through. And so when he took his life, I, you know, had a, had a sense of regret, a sense of, of what could I've done differently, a sense of reflection where I looked back and said, gosh, uh, the writing was on the wall. You know, I should have handled that differently. And I think a lot of people have these experiences because suicide is now the second leading cause of death in our country from ages 10 to 34. And it's only second to accidents. So most of us have a friend, a neighbor, a teammate, someone in our lives who ultimately took their life. And I think it's pretty normal for us to wonder, you know, what could I've done more? And so we, given that experience, I said, Brett, this is a story we have to tell. And I you know, called a bunch of my Olympic buddies and friends and said, Hey, this is the documentary we're thinking about doing. Do you have a story to tell? And it was, yes, 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 yes. It was Michael Phelps. It was Apollo Ono, who was the most successful winter Olympic athlete in, in U S history. It's Bodie Miller. Uh, it's Sean White. I mean, it's, it's kind of the who's who of, of Olympians and they tell a very authentic open story about their struggles, their struggles with depression and mental health. It's an extraordinary documentary, and one of the reasons why Brad reached out to me and said you have to watch this is because one of the things that I think you guys did so well is use the power of your platform to normalize the experience of struggle. And as you know, uh, both Brad and I 
try to do the same thing. What you may not know is that I've also been as open about my own struggles with depression and including a suicide attempt at 18, including uh, a return of those suicidal ideation feelings in 38, which actually led me to leave the venture capital business and um, wonderfully, magically reinvent myself now as this weird little CEO whisperer who like leans in and makes people cry and all that stuff. But seriously, it, it, it uh, coming to grips with those demons or, or to, to use your friend's uh, image, turning around and facing those demons instead of continuing to, to walk away from them or struggle with them. Uh, created the conditions for me to actually turn around and help other people. And the thing that I wanted to explore, and I really thank you for that, And but uh, part of what I wanted to explore was what I find to be the striking similarity between the pressures that many athletes feel and the, the concomitant um, cost and toll on their mental health with the pressures that many entrepreneurs feel and the concomitant cost in their mental health. And the thing that strikes me is, you know, you're in that Venn diagram, dude. <laughs> so tell us about that other part of your life, the being an entrepreneur. What's the company? What do you do? Yeah, CEO and founder of a company called Integrate. Uh, we're a B2B enterprise software. And we help companies figure out how to acquire prospects, customers at scale. Customers include Microsoft, HP, Cisco, Symantec. So we primarily serve the enterprise. And it's been a journey. I mean, it's been 10 years. Like we're a overnight success 10 years later. I think that's the way <laughs> some describe us. Company's doing very, very well and we're grateful for our growth and, and, and how we're helping marketers. Um, but we've been through it all. We've been through a period of time where you know we were just not gonna make payroll. And mm -hmm. Silicon Valley Bank was going to call the capital in the company. <laughs> you know, we were we were thinking of you know locking up doors. Um, we we've been through a lot of different HR challenges that I think most founders go through. We've gotten a lot of no's, you know, in route to raising the eighty million dollars of venture that we've we've raised. But I, I think to your question, there's a lot of similarities, a ton of similarities between being an athlete and chasing after a big dream or goal. Like for me, I knew at 10 years old, I told my parents, I want to ski in the Olympics. I want, I want to play in the NFL. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And both my parents who have a healthy disrespect for the impossible, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they told me, Hey, you can do that if you put your mind to it and you attack it, but you got to attack it. And it's so true. Like we can't just dream of something dreaming just, gets us a quarter of the way there. We have to execute it. We have to execute that dream. We got to go attack it. But the spotlight is very bright. You know, heading into my first Olympics, it was Salt Lake City. I was 18 years of age. It was my first international competition. I was ranked number one in the world. I was not equipped to handle that pressure. I was not equipped to handle that, that spotlight. And I ended up not winning an Olympic gold medal and the nerves were out of control. And then I went to go play football at the University of Colorado. And all of a sudden, every Saturday, I'm playing in front of 50, 60, 70,000 people. And it was really there where I was able to learn how to deal with high-pressure situations. And so my next Olympics in Torino, I, I wasn't really nervous at all. I was very prepared. So it, it, it is a journey to, to getting there. But I 
I have empathy and compassion for every founder. Um, the stakes are really high. You know, you have literally people's livelihoods that are depending on, you know, how the business is doing. Once you raise venture capital, the spotlight gets even bigger because you don't want to be a failure and you, you, you know, you want to return capital and all those types of things. So I think there's a lot of similarities to the pressures that entrepreneurs feel and the pressures that athletes, whatever, I mean, amateur, professional, whatever, that have a spotlight on them. I think it's very similar. Thank you for that. And I'm curious about a couple of things, but one in particular was playing football for CU. Things started to shift. Was it, was it maturation? What happened that made the nerves a little bit easier? So when you went to Torino, it was a little bit easier for you. I think oftentimes our anxiety around pressure is the unknown. It's not that we can't handle the challenge in front of us. It's like not knowing when the challenge is going to arise or what that moment's going to feel like. Like we're worried about running out of cash, you know, and, and what that would feel like, or we're worried about losing customers and what that would feel like, or we're worried about these things. And oftentimes um, they don't come true. And so we, we kind of keep ourselves in a steady state of concern of things that are on the horizon. And maybe some of that's good. You know, productive paranoia is probably a good thing to some extent. I think most CEOs have a level of productive paranoia where they're worried about what's around the other end of the corner. But for me, what, what happened when I, when I played uh, football for the University of Colorado is I learned that um, the game never changed. It was still football. And it didn't matter if there's three people in the stands or 50,000. All I had to do is focus on my skills, on, on my ability to catch the ball, to run the route, to know the play. And I, I learned how to differentiate between the signal and the noise. And the signal was kind of my ability to be a good football player, which is pretty basic in nature, pretty basic you know, uh, level of understanding of what, what, what I needed to do to help the team. And the noise was everything else. It was the literally the crowd noise. It was who was in the stadium. It was who was watching the game. It was who was televising it. It was who was, you know, what reporters said about me or the team heading it. All that was noise. Mm. And, and taking that to the Olympics, that um, mental progression to the Olympics was monumentally helpful for me because there's a lot of noise at the Olympics. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of noise in business. There's a lot of noise in the startup worlds. And so just, and I, it's not perfectly fine-tuned. I think, you know, it probably takes a, life, a lifetime to, to, to perfectly tune that instrument to understand what signal, what's noise, and only focus on the signal. But that's, I think that's the thing I learned the most. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, sitting in my seat, really hearing from so many folks who are struggling from so many different places – one of the observations I would make is is around the source of the noise. Yes, the noise is sometimes the fans in the stand or sometimes the noise of the investors that you don't want to disappoint. But I think a real root cause of that noise is uh, the sense of merging. It's, it's, it's the darker side of the advice that your parents gave you. Meaning your parents gave you the advice to go for it. And God bless that advice. 
it gave you the ability to have not just one dream, but two dreams realized because you did it. And now there's possibly even this third dream that's unfolding in front of you right now. But if not careful, um, and I see this happen a lot, people will merge their sense of self-worth with the attainment of those goals. And then if anything thwarts that, then all of a sudden they're racked by the depression, by humiliation, by shame. Does that resonate? So much. I mean, it just completely hits home. I, you know, I, I wrote one book in my life. And when the publisher came to me and said, what kind of book do you want to write? I said, I want to write a book on failure. I want to write a book on the topic that you just, you just mentioned. One, because I, I felt like growing up, especially in sports, there's all these anecdotes. There's all these quotes of people saying, well, failure makes you stronger. Uh, losing, you'll sharpen the sword. You know, like mm -hmm. all these kind of, you know, superficial things that didn't have a lot of substance to it that seemed great in concept, but there wasn't a lot of context. So we all fail, like every single one of us. I mean, mm -hmm. Walt Disney was fired for a lack of imagination before he started Disney. Steve Jobs was fired from Apple. Michael Jordan cut twice in high school. I mean, no matter who you are, you're going to fail. Okay. And by the way, we come into this world failing. Like, what did our first step look like as an infant? We fell on our face. And maybe if we had an ego, or if we, to your point, if we self-identified our own being with walking, maybe none of us would be walking now. Because we'd be like, you know what? I've tried it twice. I failed twice. I'm not going to take suck. a third step. Yeah, I, I suck. suck. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. I'm not a good walker. And, <laughs> and so we, we grow into these egos, and our egos give us this ability to like identify ourselves and intertwine ourselves with our goals. And, and so, you know, for me, it's like, I want to win an Olympic gold medal more than anything. And if I don't, then I must be a failure or I want to build a successful company. And if, and if integrates, not a grand slam, um, I'm a failure. And I think what, what you noted is something I, I think a lot about is the importance of setting big audacious goals. Cause that's fun. Like I love setting big goals. I love pursuing big goals against all odds. But the important part of that is realizing for all of us, and, and I, I have to remind myself of this constantly, is that I'm not that goal. That I, I'm not, I won't be defined if integrate goes public at whatever market cap or if it gets exited at whatever multiple. That'll just be a part of a journey that I'm on, but it won't define me. And I think when people really either bounce or splat during adversity, there's bouncers or splatters. There's a great article written on that. I think Brad Fell was the one that sent it to me a few years ago. But the people that can bounce are the people that don't associate themselves with their goals, don't associate them their, their being with whatever end result that they want. And they actually use the inertia of, of a failed experience because there's an amazing amount of inertia in failure. Mm. There really, there's an amazing amount of energy there. And they use it to, to redefine their compass to success in a constructive way, not a destructive way. And the, and the folks that splat are the ones that become their failures. They, they become that whatever they didn't achieve. And they stamp it on their forehead and they wear it on their forehead with shame. And I think, you know, if we can just understand as human beings, to, to, to your point, what you suggested, like, 
the, we're not our failures. We're not those things. Gosh, it really liberates our, uh, ourselves and our egos. And I actually think it in, in, in increases our ability to take bigger risks. So I agree completely. And there's a kind of discomfort I'm feeling here. And it, the discomfort may be the fact that this all sounds really positive from both of us. And I can't get out of my head, Steve Holcomb. And I want, if you're willing, I'd love to take you back to that time. And what would you have said to Steve had he called you? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I actually learned what questions to ask to the Speedy Foundation, um, who a group of folks in a nonprofit that study mental health, depression, thoughts of suicide, and are focused on educating. And when, when Jarrett Speedy Peterson pulled me aside at the Olympic Training Center and mm-hmm. opened up to me, or if Steve Holcomb would have called me and said, I'm, I'm battling with, uh, with this disease, I would have asked them two questions. And the first one would have been, have you ever thought about taking your life? Mm-hmm. And if the answer was yes, which... I know it would have been in, in Jarrett's case, and I know it would have been in Steve's case because he, he talked about a failed attempt. My next question would, would have been, have you thought about how you would do it? And the reason I would have asked those two questions is not because those two questions alone are a panacea or, or would cause you know, or fix the issue but because it, it allows somebody to probably say something that's been inside of them who knows how many years, but to verbalize it to another human being and get it out of their brain and on the table probably for the first time in their life. And most likely it's the heaviest thought that they've ever had that, they're too, that they would be so ashamed to, to tell anybody. And, and if you can do it in a disarming way, the Speedy Foundation says it's a great first step for that person to acknowledge there's a problem that they cannot control and then get on a path to try to seek and get help. So those are the, those are the two questions that I would have asked them both. Uh, I'd like to build on that if we can. In my experience, one of the things that has been helpful for me and, and we're talking about extreme in the in the in suicidal ideation, but even just talking about depression, one of the things that I think can be really powerful in those questions is to convey to the other person that you're not afraid of their feelings. And I can't emphasize this enough. One of the things that happens for those of us who are who can get trapped in those depressive suicidal thoughts is a whole meta layer of, you named it before, shame, uh, fear about the feelings themselves. And what I love about those questions is that they strike me as providing a kind of external scaffolding for the other person's um, mind to rest into and to know that... um, they're not alone 
See, for you to be able to verbalize that question means that you have to be able to internalize the idea, even if you've not felt the same level of feelings. And by being able to express to the other person that you can stand shoulder to shoulder with them and look in that space reinforces the notion that they're not awful, they're not shit, and they're not alone. And, you know, we made the link between, you know, in a sense, a performance-based culture known as athletics and the performance-based culture known as entrepreneurialism. And you, I think, wisely extracted the notion that the game remains the same. And what I saw you doing with it regard to that was finding the, the, the love, the craft, the I don't care who's in the stands. I just want to have a good run. I just want to have a good game. I just want to go down this mountain faster than I did last time. I just want to hit those moguls and not wipe out. I just want to see if I can build this company and hang out with all these incredible people and try to do something that's impossible, which is kind of like willing a business into existence. And that stance that you wisely were able to extract is hard. And sometimes it gets lost. And you're nodding because I think you recognize I mean, did you ever lose it? Well, the, the, the journey to discover what you just said wasn't an easy one for me because I was born into this existence where all you have to do is turn on the, the, the TV and our country, our media celebrates winners and nobody knows who second place is. And, and so I, it was deeply ingrained into my brain at a very, very young age that I had to win at all costs. I had to win. And so most of my early young adult life in football and skiing, I was driven purely by the ego of winning at all, at whatever cost, did not matter, whatever cost I was gonna win. If I had to wake up at 1 a.m. and go train because everybody was sleeping, I was gonna do it, didn't matter, anything. And then I read a book called The Power of Intention by Wayne Dyer when I was 22 years of age. And one chapter in that book stood out above the rest and the chapter talked about quote, giving up your need to win. And I remember first reading that I was in El Colorado, Chile, South America at a ski camp. And I remember reading that line and thinking, well, Wayne Dyer must have never been an athlete. He has no idea what he's talking about. He's never he's wanted a loser. anything. He's a loser. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, but it, it, it struck me so profoundly that I found myself I kept coming back to it, coming back to it. Even when I wasn't reading the book, I'd be on the map. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean? How could I use that to my advantage? And I found myself testing. How could I use that to win? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> I found myself doing things out of the ordinary that I would have never otherwise done, like helping my biggest competitors with course information, with things I would have, ne secrets of like training secrets. And I'm like, I'm going to try this on for size. Like, what would it mean if I gave up my need to win? And what I found is it completely liberated my ego. Maybe not completely, but, but in, a, in a large extent, liberated my ego to the point where all I really was focused on, all I really cared about 
was human progression. I wanted to get a little bit better every single day. I wanted to ski a little bit better every single run. And that next year, coming off a year I didn't win one World Cup, that next year I won more consecutive World Cup gold medals than anybody in the sports history. And I remember every time that I would win, when people would come up to me, he's like, congrats on winning. I'd be like, in my mind, gosh, they don't get it because it's not about winning. Congratulate me for for skiing up to my potential. That's what I wanted to hear. But it really was this life-altering, life-changing moment for me of getting that principle, getting that idea from from that book. I I love that story. And it it brings to mind uh, my youngest son, Michael, uh, ran track and field and in high school. And I love the concept of the personal best. I love the concept of setting a standard for yourself and really measuring yourself on how you did vis-a-vis the last time you ran versus the notion of, of that winning in a zero sum world. See what I saw you do and you know, I'm a Buddhist, so, but you grew up in Boulder, so you're used to this kind of stuff. But what I saw you do in taking in Wayne Dwyer's uh, advice and counsel was take in the joy of doing well without having to take away from someone else. Yeah, that, that you nailed it. Because it always was about taking away something from somebody else. I I go back to a World Cup and I was in France. This was before I read the book. And there was a skier who was in first place who I did not want to win. I wanted to take away their ability to win because I did not like them. I was the last skier on the hill because I qualified first. I was so focused on taking away the win from them that I crashed, landed on my head at the top jump because I was so overly consumed by my ego of taking away their need to win instead of focusing on my ability to ski the best run. Mm. There's, a, there's a line I use all the time with my clients who get fixated and focus on the competition, which is swim in your own lane. It literally doesn't matter what's going on to your left or to your right. Not until the race is over because you cannot affect them. You can only affect the one yard in front of you right now. Uh, the six inches in front of your face, it was actually a cue for me in skiing. I'd be in the starting gate. And again, a lot of signal, a lot of noise, actually more noise than signal. And my, my first key was I would look six inches in front of me, that first mogul. And I would say, that's the only thing that matters. doesn't matter who's in first. doesn't matter who's in the stands. doesn't matter who's televising. doesn't matter what my first, none of that matters. What matters is it, I got to execute that first turn perfectly. And then guess what? I'm going to get to that second turn and then I'm going to get to the top jump and then I'm going to get to the bottom and then I'm going to get to the finish line. Sports prepared me to be a CEO founder more so than anything else, Mm -hmm. because I believe that the hardest aspect of being a founder CEO is managing your own psychology Mm -hmm. because in a period of one day, you're going to wake up and you're going to take over the world. And then around noon, you're going to find out some news that's going to make you think that this company is not going to succeed. And by the way, two minutes later, you got to jump on an all hands call and you got to present to the company, or you can got to jump on a prospect meeting with a customer. And so those inevitable ups and downs and twists and turns, that's what sports is all about. You win, you lose. That can happen in the same day. 
And, and so, and, and I'm not a master at it by any means. I have not mastered this. I struggle with it because I'm more of a guy that uh, wears the emotions on the sleeve. I get excited. I get excited. And, you know, the mentally, the athletes who are best prepared are actually the one, not just athletes, human beings are the ones who never get too high and never get too low. There's this governor in the middle of the emotional, you know, chart or Venn diagram where it's like they never get too high or low. And I've always been a guy who gets pretty high when things are great and pretty low when things aren't. So I've had to really learn, and I'm still learning, how to put those governors in place. But to your point, man, did sports prepare me for, for all the difficult challenges, the inevitable moments of failure and the twists and turns of building a company. So uh, uh, you're speaking my language, as the folks in the show know. And what I often speak about is that well, there's a chapter in my book uh, called Heartbreak, Resilience, and the Path to Equanimity. And what I open up that chapter with is the roller coaster of, of life, not just entrepreneurship, but life. And that, you know, one day you ask the woman of your dreams to marry you, and then it turns out that, you know, six months later, she turns you down to marry you, right? I mean, or that, you know, your co-founder gets sick and passes away, or, you know, COVID hits, pandemics hit, right? And, and, and we're just sort of dealing with that. And I speak about the fact that we get so fixated on resilience, you know, from, from the days in which I would box, the notion that, you, you know, I can take a punch, I can take it. And so our socialized reaction to the heartbreak of that roller coaster ride is to tell ourselves that we should be resilient. But the problem with that whole construct is that we believe that that's the end of the story. And the end of the story is actually equanimity. The end of the story is the capacity to not get on the roller coaster in the first place. Yeah, to observe the roller coaster. That's it. That's it. To stand back and to be able to basically say, what a great ride this is, however it turns out. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you know, uh, we're only recording the audio so, so folks can see that you were smiling when you were telling the story of the wipeout <laughs> just as much as you were smiling telling the story about all the gold medals you won. Well, the wipeout taught me more than the gold medals. I mean, literally, it was that wipeout where I'm like, I gotta do, I gotta do some self-discovery here. What in the world just happened? I lost the World Cup that I should have won because I didn't want this this guy to win. That can't be a healthy thought. And then about six months later, I I read the book, The Power of Intention, and 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 so if it wasn't for that failure, the moment where I felt literally landed on my head. I, I would not have been as receptive to Wayne Dyer's idea of giving up the need to win. I wouldn't have been as receptive to it. Maybe my ego would have been too hard and said, that's crazy. Forget about it. Don't ever think about it again. Go, go beat everybody and don't let anybody else win. You win everything. But, but it was really through that failed experience. But I, I do connect um, intimately to what you said of like, hey, you know, observe the roller coaster. It's going to go up. It's going to go down. And even if you're on it, enjoy some of the downs and the twists and turns and the whoop-de-whoops. And but but realize that you know, if if you're down, the, the you're going to go up. Uh, you know, soon. And and just keep 
you know, I don't know the secret to life. I really don't. And, and I don't pretend to, but one thing I always come back to, and it's super basic for it a million times, just keep moving, just get up and like, just keep moving no matter what, just keep taking steps forward. Don't stop, you know, reflect along the way and learn along the way. But if you wake up every morning, irrespective of how you calibrate your own success or how your own you know, life is and social media doesn't help, right? Because we all have this measuring stick of like how successful everyone else is and how great their life is, but it's totally fake because we're only sharing the best moments. We never share the moments that we're down or we're failing. So we're always thinking like everybody else's life is better. Irrespective of any of that, I just feel like if you just keep moving towards that goal, towards your goal, eventually you're going to get there. Eventually you're, you're going to accomplish it. It might not look like what you thought it was and it might not ultimately be the goal you thought it was going to be. But it might be another goal that you didn't even realize that was meant for you to happen. I think that last bit that you just had was the most important piece, which is if you, if you hold loosely what the objective is and, and stay focused on the joy ride of the trying, then you don't know. You don't know. No, I mean, you, no. said, you said it before. Whatever happens to Integrate, whether, whether Integrate is a lifestyle business that just generates, you know, a really good income for you and for all the employees now and forever, or if somebody comes along and the tooth fairy buys it, <laughs> whatever ends up happening is okay. Yeah. The question is, who are you as that is going on? How are you as a person? Are you able to see the competitor with compassion, to see the competitor with empathy, and to put your head down on the pillow at night and say to yourself, not bad. Some things I can do tomorrow that are better, but not bad today. Let me sleep tonight and let me rest. And that maps back to a study that was done at hospice, like a 10-year study at hospice patients of understanding what the five biggest regrets in their life is. These are people 80s, 90s, and 100s. And one of them that constantly comes up is, I wish I didn't worry so much in my life. Mm -hmm. I, I wish I wouldn't have been so worried about every twist and turn and change. And I think that's powerful, right? Because those are the folks who've already seen the full movie, you know, and they're, they're at this amazingly powerful point in their life where they're reflecting on their life and kind of communicating to the rest of us saying that, you know, watch out for this, <laughs> you know, be on the lookout for this. Cause it's something I wish, I wish I, I would have changed. And I, I've lived on both sides of that coin. I've lived on the side where it's win at all costs and it's take away wins from everybody else. And it's pursue greatness at, at all costs. And I, I now more live on the side of, um, Hey, I want to win as much as anybody, but not at the cost of people hating their lives or people hating their jobs or being disrespectful to other people or not leading with compassion or empathy and not treating one another with respect. These are all cultural values that we hold dearly to, um, to ourselves to integrate. And I can tell you without a doubt, life is more enjoyable on this side. It is much, much more enjoyable living my life every day on this side of the coin than it was on the other. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.
At Reboot, we often talk about the value of relationships in mirroring back to us our blind spots. Now, all honest feedback is valuable, and it's great if your culture supports a constant flow of feedback. But it's often helpful for leaders to take deeper dives into radical self-inquiry, giving themselves focused and intentional space to examine the patterns of behavior that are either serving them or not serving their teams and their missions. 360 reviews are a really powerful tool that can help leaders make course corrections, supporting both individual growth and the growth of the company. While there are many approaches to 360s out there, what we have found to be the most helpful to our clients is to approach the 360s as an extension of the coaching conversation. Most leaders don't care how they rate numerically on a list of abstract capacities. And even if they do, it's tough for them to really know how to make use of that kind of data. But if they can hear through the voices of their colleagues how their behavior is making impact, and if they can be helped by a coach to see more clearly the choices available to them for change, the benefits can be immense. If you'd like to learn more about Reboot 360s, you can go to reboot.io slash 360.